When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Thompson, and you're listening to Grill and JR with the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. Jim, what's going on, man? How are you? I'm enduring the sweltering heat of my home state of Oklahoma, Conrad, and it's uh, it's challenging. Heat and fat guys, as you might know, don't are not real uh, compatible. Now, air conditioning was made for guys like us, and let's talk about why we're here. Yep. Great American Bash, 1989. One of the most requested shows I've ever had uh, with Tony Schiavone, what happened when people have been asking for us to cover Great American Bash 89 since we started that show. I think a lot of longtime WCW fans consider this one of the very best wrestling pay-per-views of all time. Certainly one of the best WCW pay-per-views. And it's just because of a tremendously stacked card. When your undercard has Sting and Great Muda and your main event is Ric Flair and Terry Funk, Man, uh, it's a tall bill, and uh, we're excited to cover it here for you today. It went down at another wrestling hub, Baltimore, Maryland. A sellout crowd here, 12,500 fans. Meltzer would say about 11.5 paid. $188,000 gate, which is the biggest gate since a year prior at the Great American Bash, once again in Baltimore. Baltimore was a hub for you guys here in WCW, was it not? Yeah, absolutely, and that's because of Gary Jester. Gary's now with the ring of honor doing the, basically the same stuff, uh, showrunner and promoter type thing. Gary did a great job. He lived in the area, he lived in DC, had all these media contacts as we talked about before. It was a considered a quasi WWE town, uh, from back in the day. That's where, uh, Bruno lost the title to superstar Billy Graham. As a matter of fact, they did it as far away from their hub of New York city in the garden as they could. Uh, and still be in their territory by going south to Baltimore for that event. So it's got a long history, and Gary did a great job. And that's why we were in Baltimore so so often. And now I would go back to Baltimore just to go to Jimmy's Seafood and have some more damn crab cakes. But uh, well, you got to have wrestling to go. <laughs> just go. Let's just go to Jimmy's. So it's it was a good it was a good experience, and it was a hell of a show. I I watched it yesterday, and I watched it part of it again this morning, and uh, I really brought back great memories. It was a it was a unique show, but you can see on that show how having active participants, active wrestlers on the, in the booking realm 
can affect the show. And we can talk about that as we go along. Yeah, let's do that. And I want to remind everybody, this went down on July 23rd, 1989. So two days ago, that was the 30 year anniversary of this show. Time sure does fly. I remember this show. Now we're coming off wrestle war 89, uh, which was the end of the flare steamboat trilogy from 89. Of course, we know that one went down in Nashville. And at the conclusion of that, where Ric Flair is crowned champion, one of the judges decided to climb in the ring and say he wanted a title shot and Flair refused saying you're not recognized in the NWA as being in the top 10. So sorry, that can't happen. And then he attacked Ric Flair. Of course, we're talking about Terry Funk tried to give him a pile driver through a table and they were off to the races. You know, when we talk about, um, 1989, it seems like we always sort of circle back to the steamboat trilogy, but wow, what a transition to for Rick to go from this tremendous wrestling clinic that he put on not once, not twice, but three times with Ricky steamboat. And now he's right into another classic feud with Terry Funk. I think you could argue this is one of the best years a wrestler ever had as far as the storytelling and two separate feuds go. Would you agree? Yeah. 89 was a great wrestling year in WCW largely because of what you mentioned, uh, flair and steamboat had those three amazing matches, all different, man. I was, I was really lucky. I was the right place at the right time. Uh, I called all three of those matches and I called them with different partners each and every time. So I had different experiences. But the bigger thing, as I always say, how was the music? Well, the Flair Steamboat music was beautiful. It was brilliant. And it was not hard to put the appropriate lyric to their music. Uh, it was just a, a, a thing of beauty. Sometimes I used to think Flair and Steamboat were too smooth. They, just, they were seamless. It's almost like, and they, hey, look, these are not two guys that sat down and went over every spot and when you're going to do this, and when you're going to exhale and. I'll stand over here and I'll look over here and I'll be cool and I'll preen and uh, I'll, I'll have a great big move, but I won't cover you for a finish because I don't know how to work. They, they actually, uh, changed that match every time. I never saw them in the afternoon sitting in their little huddle, like a lot of talents do today to memorize what they're going to do. They felt the crowd, what the crowd was buying is what those two cats sold. And it was an amazing, uh, uh, uh honor to call those. And they feel say, well, I, they'll say some of these Q and A's we do, I've had people ask me, well, isn't Okada and Omega the best trilogy you've ever called? Well, it, it was really amazing, but I can't tell you it was better than Flair and Steamboat. And I won't tell you that because I don't think it was, I think it was, just, I think they're both in the same level, extraordinary. So, uh, but the younger fans today in 1989, many weren't even born to listen to the show. Uh, they should go back, find this show. YouTube, WWE network, wherever you want to and watch it. And you'll see a whole different presentation and you will see an entire lineup of hall of fame talents, many in their prime or just getting in their prime on, on this show. It was a really, a, a pleasure to watch it back. It was cause I don't watch these shows back, right? You, you know, I, this is the first time I watched that show back yesterday and today. Yeah. Since it happened. So I was, it's, it's been a, it was really fun to do that. I, I enjoy that part of it. So to set the stage on top, Ric Flair has just defeated Ricky Steamboat and, uh, he's technically his, it's his 11th world title reign. It's recognized as his sixth, uh, we're splitting hairs though. Uh, the nature boy has the title back and right after is when he's attacked and Flair would write in his book that Terry almost killed him. He says, it's hard to protect a guy when you're both crashing through a table. I couldn't turn my head for weeks. 
but Terry was ahead of his time. People didn't just dr- uh, pile drive their opponents through tables back then. And in the coming weeks, fans were told I had a severe neck injury and I convinced them by wearing a brace around Charlotte while running errands, even while on airplanes, this is a different era. Um, is this all just total storyline or did Rick need a little time off to recoup some other injuries? Was there a little bit of burnout or is it just all storyline and we're just keeping up with the Joneses when we're wearing our neck brace in public? I think that it was, uh, uh, selling the angle, respecting the angle, respecting himself and the, his opponent looking to, uh, have that bigger opportunity, which was what we're talking about here in great American bash 89. Uh, but there are a lot of storyline in, however, you know, uh, I, I didn't know what the hell Terry was going to do with this, uh, pile driver through the table at wrestle war. I had no, I wasn't aware of the spot. Didn't know there's going to, I knew there's going to, there may be an altercation to try to get us to another pay-per-view and another and make another match. Uh, but I, I just didn't, I didn't know all this was happening and I was shocked to see it. And now of course, tables are, are like metal folding chairs. They have to be at every arena. They have to be under the ring at every place. So nothing's organic in that respect. It's a total work. It's a total expose because we do the same shit over and over and over. Hey, I love it when Bubba Dudley would say, Devon, get the tables. I still like it, but boy, the table thing is wore out and, uh, it's, it's just been overused at that time. It was brand new power driving. Some of the time I've never seen in my career, someone get power driven through the table. A, a table. So it was a, it was shocking. So I, I guess Rick kind of tweaked it a little bit, but the bottom line, having him take time off, let him heal, let him recharge his batteries. And it more importantly for the fans, it allowed the angle to be sold correctly. And the anticipation of the, uh, uh, of the eventual meeting between Flair and steamboat to be underscored. So I think we pulled that one off in a, in a nice way, the way it was booked and letting Rick be off for a while. Cause that let Terry run wild. Terry could get all the heat he wanted. I remember, uh, Rick called me one time pissed off because Terry did a promo with a fellow named Ron Ames. Ron's passed on. Now Ron was uh, doing PR and stuff there in the WCW and he, Ron, Ron was the, to give you what Ron looked like, Ron would, would look like, uh, the illegitimate son of Don, uh, Don Knotts, Andy, you know, uh, Barney Fife, little skinny guy. Biggest thing on him, I think, that I saw was his Adam's apple. Uh, and so he had a, he got, a, they got him a chief robe and a, and a blonde wig. Terry bought him on TBS and he interviewed Ric Flair. And it was Ron Ames, of course. Uh, and that pissed Rick off. So I said, well, it must be working because you're supposed to get pissed off. You know, he said, well, Terry's just doing that. I said, Terry's trying to draw money, Nate. You know, he's, he's making a big comeback. He's in his, he's, Terry was not a young kid at that time. So that's, that's kind of how that worked. I, I think Rick needed time off and, but I didn't know how seriously his neck was bothering him, but now I know. I do think, uh, you know, it's a different era that that's sort of fun when, you know, you're wearing your neck brace, even in public, you're, you know, this is before everything was, was online and, uh, fans weren't as quote unquote smart. Uh, wrestling was just more fun in 89, especially the NWA. And I, I do want to over how strongly these shows were received the wrestling observer reader poll uh showed 296 thumbs up for wrestle war 89 the show we're sort of recapping with the pile driver through the table now to be clear it got zero thumbs down so 
everyone who watched the show enjoyed the show uh, and thought it was a great show. And a lot of this is because you've got a returning Terry Funk and of course a tremendous match on top with, with Steamboat and Flair. But as critically acclaimed as it is, business isn't the best. Meltzer would write, as a business standing on its own, World Championship Wrestling must be operating deeply in the red. Its prime income source, house shows, have by and large been disastrous all year. Its pay-per-view events haven't drawn nearly what the company hoped, although nobody could have foreseen the television ratings dropping to the levels they reached some weeks back, and that accounts for a lot of it. Depending on who you believe, the company, World Championship Wrestling, is said to be losing twenty-five dollars to $30,000 a day. It has between 35 and 40 touring wrestlers, five managers, one valet, a ref or two, and even a television announcer on the road daily. Approximately 25 of the wrestlers are under contract for between 75 to a reported $550,000 a year. And cost of taping, so many television shows are high. And even those within the company who are optimistic don't expect major changes in this profit-loss picture until the winter at the earliest. Under normal circumstances within this business, it would be about time to read the NWA its last rights. Many are already doing so. And if the figures are correct, a potential 10 million in losses over the first year of the new company have to be a lot greater than even what TBS bargained for. I don't claim to have any inside knowledge as to what the real commitment TBS has in regards to wrestling, but I also don't believe those who are saying TBS wants to sell the company after this summer have any inside knowledge either. Even if WCW is losing money on paper, that can be deceiving. TBS, which owns WCW, is deriving millions of dollars annually in advertising income from its various pro wrestling shows. The wrestling shows still do better in their time slots than the quote-unquote average programming does on the station, and TBS runs four hours weekly of what is now decently rated programming, which has a track record of being some of its highest rated programming. They run quarterly specials, which bring in several hundred thousand dollars a piece and add revenue and TBS's share of the Nashville pay-per-view show, for example, should have still been in the neighborhood of $750,000. Now I enjoy breaking down the numbers on here with you, Jim, even though you weren't necessarily running the books at the time, because you always have a different perspective than say a Bruce Pritchard or an Eric Bischoff or certainly a Tony Schiavone. But I do think this is sort of glossed over a lot that while WCW may have been operating in the red and. Lord knows Eric has told us that his primary goal when he took over WCW was just to turn $1 a profit. The thing that sort of gets lost in translation is they're essentially shouldering all the burden of producing the TV and receiving none of the benefit, at least on paper. But in actuality, that money's still going, it still winds up in the same place. Turner broadcasting. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the, the day paints a, a bleak picture and a lot of it is accurate. Uh, regarding the losses there, but again, by him admitting, and, uh, and even I didn't know, I didn't have the information that, uh, uh, the, you know, the, uh, the damn thing was losing that much money a day and all these things are estimates and guesses. Uh, obviously we we were losing money. I didn't know how much, but also we were losing money on one set of criteria, but as, as uh, he pointed out, the ad dollars, uh, were, uh, tremendous and the fact that t- the TBS was not paying, uh, for the r- programming WCW at that time, Eric's the one that did that. And it was a smart deal, uh, very smart, but where, where Turner started buying or paying WCW for programming 
and they had not done that. So it was a little bit misleading. Was it, uh, was it a big financial boom? No. Was it, could it be, and did it become a, a big boom? Yes. But uh, counting in TVS, I'll, I'll just say was always very creative. And, uh, and, and quite frankly, many of us who were there on the inside from day one were not aware of what that accounting really was. Were you ever, you know, Tony Schiavone has joked that, you know, from the moment he came back from the world wrestling federation to WCW very quickly within the first week or two, he was concerned, Hey, things are not good here. I don't know how much longer we're going to be in business. Was that a concern of yours or did you have confidence that, Hey, we may not be, you know, killing it, but we're still, we're still in business. We're not going anywhere. I didn't think we were going to go anywhere, but I also could understand Tony's angst. You know, he's raising five kids, right? Uh, he, he's got a pretty, pretty good chore in his hand. And, uh, so, uh, I, I, we had different agendas in that respect. I can certainly see, uh, where one could assume that, Hey, look, while we're doing here right now is just moving around the deck chairs on the Titanic, because that son of a bitch is going to sink. Uh, it didn't sink. It sound it sunk. But years later, uh, but yeah, I, I just, I never thought we'd go out of business. I just thought the programming to have first run weekly episodic programming that was new, that it was not re- repeats. It was not rehashed, uh, well, not reruns. I thought it had great value to, to Turner because, and that's why a lot of, a lot of times, uh, even though the Braves were not very good in that era, uh, they eventually got good. But they, they weren't that good in that era. They, they provided programming for a TBS that they couldn't go out and buy. So I, I thought it was, uh, I thought we had value and I, and I, and I really believe that, but, uh, it, I can see where Tony's uh, problem was with that situation because he had a whole different life to, to do live, maintain, grow than I did being divorced. My kids are, you know, uh, in college or, or getting grown. So I didn't have the same, uh, checklist as he did, but I can get what he's, where he's coming from. You've mentioned the Braves. Uh, I do want to mention that Meltzer says that a major positive step for the NWA was announced on Friday when TBS likely through the influence of Jeff Carr agreed to move the Saturday world championship wrestling show back to six Oh five Eastern. Uh, this move helps for several reasons. First, it puts the show back in its traditional time slot that it's appeared in for most of this decade when it was a staple at the top of the cable ratings industry. Uh, the show no longer has the poorly rated United States Olympic gold sports anthology series as a lead in. And most importantly, it limits the scheduling changes due to the Atlanta Braves baseball commitments. So the show will begin each week at six Oh five after the time slot change, which will go into effect on June 24th. And it'll be 90 minutes when the Braves are at home and two hours, uh, when they're on the West coast, uh, this is, um, this is sort of like, you know, peanut butter and jelly, the NWA at six Oh five just goes together. When you first heard, Hey, they're going to move it. Uh, was there a lot of reason to be upset uh, or is this just, Hey man, you got to roll with the punches. Well, you kind of got to roll with the punches in that corporate world, but I thought it was great that uh, we were going, getting a staples, uh, uh, starting time. And ironically, the established starting time that people have grown up with over the years. So, uh, I thought it was good news. I thought it had stability, consistent consistency, but you still got the elephant in the room. You got to deal with and that's the brave schedule. So 
Uh, and sometimes that was a, that was a, a daunting to be the, to say the least. But, uh, I, I think that it was the right thing to do. I thought the schedule people just, they love that. They, we got good feedback on six Oh five, right back at six Oh five. It just made sense. It was a tradition and a lot of fans as they still do today, embrace tradition. So, uh, I, I, uh, I had no issues with, it. I thought it was a good thing. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm a big believer in consistency and where you don't have to look to where you find us, you know, with AEW going to TNT this uh, October, you're going to know exactly the day you're going to know exactly the time. And that's where it's going to be every week. And that helps build consistent ratings. It gives you a fighting chance to carve out your share of the audience. If they can more easily find you with some regularity and consistency. I do want to ask, I'm glad you mentioned that because I did want to bring up that, you know, a lot of the rumor and innuendo when AEW first became a thing is that, oh, well, when SmackDown moves from Tuesday to Friday, they'll just slide into that Tuesday show. And, you know, there was sort of more flames on the fire when it came out that <clears throat> AEW attempted to trademark and maybe successfully did Tuesday night dynamite. But then I think a lot of people started to say, well, wait a minute, isn't there basketball during that time? And if there's basketball, won't they be preempted some? And of course you were on raw when raw was preempted by tennis or the dog show. Uh, uh, yeah, <laughs> but you know, there is some value to being in that exact spot that SmackDown left a hole for now. It hasn't been announced yet, but lots of folks are betting that the show will wind up on a Wednesday. Is that, I mean, if you had your pick, if, if you're in the driver's seat of AEW, would you have picked, Hey, let's take the spot that SmackDown left open, but let's be preempted some by basketball and, and other ventures on TNT or Let's go with the consistency on Wednesday. If those were the two options and you were making the decision, you'd choose Wednesday. Hands down, hands down. Uh, again, going back to my thought earlier about how can you, can you find us? Uh, are you, you know, are we, where we, are we, where we're supposed to be? Do you have to look for our show? Uh, all those things. Uh, I like the consistency and, uh, a lot. So I, I Wednesday, Wednesday would be my choice. It hasn't been made official yet, but if I've ever, if I'm ever asked and I'm probably not because that's a big corporate thing with the, the network and with uh, AEW, I'd say go to Wednesday. So I'm hoping for Wednesday and that means that my life will change. I'll be leaving, uh, my, my home here in Norman every Tuesday, Tuesday morning and get to the TV, the, uh, the site for our event, uh, on Tuesday, have a production meeting Tuesday night. And then, uh, do the show live on Wednesday and come home, but that's going to be every week. There's no off season here. As we all know, we've talked about that ad nauseum. So I like the Wednesday, so we'll see how it's going to turn out. But if, if I had a, I had a bet, if I had to get in the office pool, Wednesday would be my day. Afford anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford anything, wherever you listen. I do want to mention in this write-up that Meltzer did about you guys going back to the 605 slot. He says that the day before you go back, June 23rd, 
you're going to have a new show called NWA wrestling power hour, uh, which will be a one hour program. That's going to feature personality profiles, maybe a match or two, and then a Piper's pit like segment hosted by Terry Funk, perhaps some music videos and the like. And, uh, it's debated here in the newsletter that Jim Cornette may be the leading candidate for that show. So I do find it fascinating that at a time when we're talking about how boy, TBS is hemorrhaging cash that so they got to be ready to wash their hands of this product. Oh yeah. We're also giving you more programming. Uh, when you find out that, Hey, we're getting a new show. Is that something you're excited to line up and produce and, and you've got ideas for, or, or how is that? information sort of disseminated and then decided how we'll program it. Is that all heard or, or what's that look like? Well, it came, the information came through her, but the, uh, Jeff Carr, uh, a long time, uh, Turner, uh, employee and programming was a huge wrestling fan and a very nice man, uh, was looking to help us throw a life preserver out there to give us some buoyancy. And, uh, he did, he did a great job, a great service for the fans and for our company. Uh, I looked at it as a hell of a deal because I believe that show is going to air on Friday night and like a prime time slot. So if you can get on, on, even though Friday night's on a great TV night, uh, it's been proven over the years, uh, XFL Friday night's not so good. Uh, we'll see how, uh, WWE SmackDown does on, on, uh, Fox. Hope they do great, but Friday night's a tough one. Uh, so I, I think, uh, it was a bonus for us. To me, it was a bonus. It was a good news thing that we're going to go back. We're going to have a show on Friday. And I think in the very beginning, I think I did that show with Cornette. I believe that's what we, Cornette was on the show. It's hard to remember all the details because we had some re, uh, revolving chairs there, but I like the information Conrad. Anytime you get a new show, that's one hour, not a marathon, a one hour show in prime time on a, on a network. Uh, like Turner, uh, you can't look at that anyway, but uh, this is going to be a good thing. Yeah, no doubt about it. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about some other news and notes at the time. Uh, I don't know how we, um, I know we just briefly talked about this on our dusty roads episode, but as a quick reminder, cause it is the same era, dusty roads winds up in the WWF at the end of May. And we did that whole show in our archives. If you'd like to check it out, grillandjr.com. Were you in touch with him when he signs his deal with the WWF and uh, what was the reaction here in WCW when you find out that, Hey, Dusty's with Vince now? Uh, no, I wasn't really in, uh, in, uh, consistent contact with Dusty. Uh, we kept in touch, uh, cause we're friends, but look, this thing had been going on off and on, uh, the head, head butting. You know, we had a, the herd was trying to be too involved in the booking. Uh, he didn't trust, uh, the booker. Hence we had a huge booking committee at one time, which is a waste of space. Didn't accomplish shit, uh, other than piss off the talent roster because their peers who are also wrestlers and wrestling, uh, were getting all the great spots because they happened to be gasp on the booking committee. So, uh. I just didn't, didn't like that. The setup was built to fail. Dusty was caught in a crossfire. Dusty was old school. He wanted to be the guy. Don't blame him. If you're asked, if you are a coach and your, your, uh, your future is dependent on wins and losses and you, you, uh, you, you don't win. You have to understand the obvious repercussions. You're gone. 
It's that way in sports. It's that way. An actor has a, has a, has a couple of bombs in the movies. He ain't no longer above the title. So, uh, Dusty got dealt a bad hand there. In my view, it went ongoing as a result of poor leadership by Jim Hurd. There was always goddamn turmoil there. Something was always changing. Uh, that's why the house shows sucked. We kept getting interference from, well, I don't want that. You know, Hurd's a famous guy that wanted to put, uh, you know, the hunchbacks, the mass team called the hunchbacks with these prosthetic backs uh, so that you couldn't put their shoulder blades on the canvas so they could never lose. So I told him, we're sitting there talking. I said, isn't that a great idea? Well, uh, no, it's not because they can still lose. How can they lose? You can't put their, sh- how about submissions? Oh, God damn it. You always screw things up <laughs> It's a, as an option. Uh, so, uh, I, it was a, it was turmoil and some people embrace in chaos. Jim Hurd was a lot like that. He felt like he needed, uh, to, uh, he felt like he needed to, you know, uh, be assertive and he just needed to back away because he still has the ultimate, uh, gavel to hit. If we don't get ratings up, if the house shows don't come up, we got to make some changes. But in the meantime, I'm going to let you run with it to see if you can make that happen. Dusty and Dusty didn't really get that chance. He got saddled with the booking committee. If you had eight guys on the booking committee, you had eight different agendas. And, uh, I don't think that's healthy. Well, what else doesn't help thee is, uh, Bob Orton's employment. He's fired here. According to Meltzer after a dispute in Atlanta. Uh, Dave would write the committee wanted Orton to do the job at the midnight express versus Orton and butch Reed match, which airs this coming Saturday on TBS. Orton said he'd do it, but only if the finish saw Orton having Bobby eaten up in the superplex while the ref is distracted by Jim Cornette. And then Teddy long and Murdoch will come out of the back and trip Orton. So Eaton would fall on top for the pin. And the committee wanted Orton to get pinned cleanly as a way to get the midnight express back on track. So when he doesn't agree, they fire him. Um, what do you think about, I mean, this is sort of weird. I don't think we ever even hear about this now guys saying I won't do that. And then the promotion fires them over a finish of a match. I mean, it's really semantics, right? I mean, whether somebody cheats or you win clean, who gives a shit? What was your yeah. take on this? Uh, well, just what you said, who gives a shit? Who's going to remember it? Uh, that was another deal that illustrated a lack of communication and a lack of confidence by the roster. Remember, uh, Bob Wharton jr. Has always been considered one of the best, uh, technical wrestlers ever in the pro wrestling world. He's a, he was a second generation guy. Bobby was understood the ways of the world and the pro wrestling, uh, business. Uh, so to me, it was much to do over nothing. And you know, your contract, you, you, you're, you, you take the bat out of your hands when you don't want to do what you're asked to do. That's part of the gig here. So I, I, I thought it was a lot to do over nothing. I thought it, it, Bobby should have probably just let it go. Keep his job. He wasn't, he wasn't really sought after at that point in time. It had a run in WWE and the territories. Uh, I loved his work. Always did. But, uh, I think he got bad advice and that's another thing, you know, the boys love to poison the boys. They see a weak link, they exploit it, and which is kind of a sick trait, but it's factual. 
Let's talk a little bit about uh, the Varsity Club. Meltzer would report that the Varsity Club is now history and that Rotunda is currently working underneath with Scott Steiner and suplex matches, while Kevin Sullivan will also be an underneath heel. Dan Spivey is going to get a push as a singles heel managed by Teddy Hart. And uh, I'm pretty sure Teddy Hart's not there. How about yeah, he, uh, yeah, he, he missed that booking. But yeah, Teddy he, Long was there. I'm, yeah, that, I meant to say Teddy Long, but, <laughs> but the creative here. Uh, laid out by Dave Meltzer is, uh, Gary Hart. Uh, and, and somehow Gary Hart and Teddy long got together and made a baby named Teddy Hart. That's where wrestlers <laughs> come from boys and girls. Uh, he also says that Steve Williams is going to return from Japan as a baby face. And they're going to do a phantom turn and a phantom angle saying that Sullivan paid Terry Gordy to hit Williams with a tire iron while they were both in Japan. So the varsity club is no moss. Uh, I think you've mentioned here before on the show that you really like the varsity club. What's up with this politics? Uh, uh, you know, just politics egos. It's just sad. It really was sad. And it it speaks right back to leadership folks. You got, you you know, somebody has got to put the rudder in the water that knows where you're going. Heard tried to awkwardly put the rudder in the water, but he had not one clue where we were going. Hence the hunchbacks or the ding dongs where you ring a bell for the to make their comeback. They had like a ship's bell and hard was so obsessed thinking that the only successful wrestling needed to mirror what WWE was doing with their characters and with their over the top presentations of talent. And so we had to be more hokey than them in his view seemed like. He wouldn't use the word hokey, obviously, but it was, it was weak. It's really weak. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, the, the, where we were headed was the eventualities that happened were not surprises. The, the division could not be totally successful under the leadership that they had at that point in time. And I've been abused, accused and, and, uh, verbally abused that, you know, Jr. was Hurd's guy and. And I used to tell the booking committee, you know, you MFers, uh, break the gut. You, you, you'll, you'll have a double knockout at the elevator. The minute that this meeting is over so you can make your flights and get the hell out of there. Some of us live there. Some of us could not escape, including Maw. So, and then Heard was then, uh, hanging by himself and he'd walk in. Let's have a steak. It takes a lot of fuel to run this engine. I need some gin. God damn it. What a day. Okay. So, uh, I was left, I was left at the altar, so to speak, by my peers who uh, were busting their ass to get home or drive home. A lot of them still live in Charlotte. So, uh, it was not a good, uh, uh, situation there, Conrad. It just really wasn't. And, and, and I, and a lot of it, you go back and I hate to, I'm not trying to, you know, stick my spurs into herd. Uh, I did have some fun with the guy. I enjoyed Ted Turner's money and buying the steaks and the, and the crown Royal I drank, but you know, I, I just, I, and I, we had arguments at dinner, you know, you can't do that. This is not going to work. Here's why. Then it'd always come back to the same thing without trying to dissect it and look at my, my analogy. It was simply, you're just too goddamn negative. Okay. Whatever you say, whatever you say, I would, have another, have another gen. Cause I know it takes a lot of fuel to run that engine. Let's talk about Ken Resnick. Meltzer would report that he got a tryout as an announcer during the dark matches. And, uh, he would also say he's the leading candidate, but not the only candidate to take over as the play by play man on worldwide wrestling. 
Uh, and of course, as you said, the, you guys are doing a lot of musical chairs guys, you know, various combinations of Jim Cornette and Jim Ross and Michael Hayes and Lance Russell and Paul Lee and Bob Cottle. I mean, you've got just a who's who of, of, of wrestling talent here, but Ken Resnick is not a name we hear very often. Any memories of him? Uh, well, you know, his AWA work that he did some work for, for, uh, uh, WWE back in the day. Uh, he ironically sent me a, uh, a, a, a direct message on Facebook here a while back. And, uh, we, he, he and I have never met. He came in for the tryout. I didn't meet him. Uh, I didn't, you know, I don't know if I even knew he was there that day because the production facility was, we were, I was in my office on the 12th floor of the South tower and the TV production facility was downstairs, uh, near the food court at CNN center. So I didn't, I didn't know who all was coming through there all the time, but, uh, he and I have never met. We're going to meet in Charlotte on the 17th when we do our show there, he's going to be there to make it an appearance. Uh, you know, a very solid announcer, but it's that same, that same thirst to change for change sake. One of the bigger poisons in wrestling, ladies and gentlemen, is change for change sake. Well, we got to do something different. Well, okay. You're right. Now, what is the plan? I don't know. We're just gonna do something different. And that's kind of where we're there. And that's one of the reasons that, uh, uh, heard brought in Eric. Eric had a great look, uh, handsome guy spoke well and, uh, needed work. And so he, he, he got that gig and, uh, and, and of course the rest is history in that regard, but I didn't know Kenny, but I'm going to meet him in Charlotte, but he's, he was a skilled announcer. I don't know what happened, why it didn't work out, but somebody didn't like him and either, you know, Keith Mitchell's in charge of that stuff, but heard made the final decision. So it's a, it's a, uh. It was just, it was just, it was, it was just what it was. It's just the musical chairs, uh, heard like to create when heard hired Eric, he said, well, I got some competition for your ass. I said, excuse me. He's young. He's good looking. So in other words, I'm not young and I'm not good looking. Uh, so I've got, I'm in the fight for my life with Eric coming in because he's young and good looking. So it's kind of that WWE mentality. You know, where, where looks and youth are valued over skill and experience, but that's Hollywood in general, according to Jim Carrey, who told Lawler and I that on the set of men on the moon. So, uh, I, I didn't, I didn't, uh, it was just another illustration. I'm trying to say that created chaos, confusion, uneasiness. And for some reason, our leader felt like that was the way that we should all be on edge all the time. And I disagree. I'll tell you somewhere you were on edge. That's clash of the champions seven, uh, guts and glory. You just mentioned this one to me the other day because I asked, Hey, was, uh, or somebody asked, was the fight for the fallen show, the hottest you've called. And you've said, no, you've called hotter. And I joked (laughs) Saudi Arabia and you corrected me. Nothing was hotter than Fort Bragg, North Carolina, man, no air conditioning in the gym. It was oversold. The soldiers are there in force. Plus some fans as well. It was packed. There was no air circulating. And, and, uh, and of course I, I dearly love Bob Cottle and we're going to talk about Bob cause he had a big role in this great American bash 89. Uh, Bob, uh, told me that it's the first time in his life he ever sweat through his socks. It was, it was hideous. And I got in trouble for saying we, well, here's the funny thing. 
uh, I got called in, her called me in the week, the Monday after that show or whatever. Next day I was in the office, wherever it was. And he said, well, you got us in trouble again. God damn it. What did I do now? Other than sweat my ass off in a, in a stupid, stupid, uh, booking that we did in the summertime going to Fort Bragg was a great idea. It's kind of like that before the, uh, you know, the tribute to the troops type thing. It's a great idea, but God almighty, not in June with no air conditioning. So, uh, it was hot on the crew. The equipment was overheating. The cameramen were fading away. Uh, it was hard. So that was, uh, it just was miserable, but Bob sweat through his, suit, his socks and I sweat through my entire suit, pants, shirt, and coat. Uh, it was the hottest I have ever worked in any environment, uh, miserable to say the least. So when we did that show a couple of weeks ago in Jacksonville at the, at the amp and Tony Khan's amphitheater, uh, it was hot 85, 90 degrees. At least we were kind of in the shade and we had some fans on us, uh, that helped a little bit, but man, that, uh, Fort Bragg bit piece of business was a, a bitch and we pulled it off. I'm glad we did the show, but the environment was hideous. The only people that got any, uh, any, there's some, there's one or two locker rooms that have some AC in it. And that, of course they were at capacity because nobody, everybody wanted to stay cool. And then the guys in a truck that were Keith Mitchell and his crew. They had a little bit of a break because they had some air conditioning in their truck. Uh, me and old rowdy Bob Cottle just walked out there and sat down and started sweating and hung in there. Of course you got to hang it through the commercial breaks and that was an interesting show, but it was hotter than hell. I could promise you. It was, and the crowd was ready for it. And then you can tell by the end of the show, they start thinning out because it's too hot for them too. Uh, Rick Flair is not on this as a reminder, he's out of commission after this may pay-per-view where he gets pile driven. Uh, through the table. So we do some cutaway interviews with yourself, uh, and the champ, I, th I believe in his living room while he's sporting a Lakers jacket and a neck brace, which is kind of hilarious. <laughs> the, the last thing on this card though, at this clash of the champions is Ricky steamboat and Terry funk. Ricky's going to get the win by DQ and Luger is going to attack steamboat at the end of the match and effectively turn heel here. And this sets up their match at the great American bash, which we're going to talk about today. Uh, why is the. Why, why is there a need to have Lex Luger turn heel? Are you just looking for an opponent? It does feel like as soon as flair's done with uh, steamboat, he's off to bigger and better things with Terry funk now, but the other guy, the former champ, we got to have something for him to do. Why is the right opponent, a newly healed Lex Luger? Well, Lex was not getting over as a baby face. He was, he had uh, a, a hefty contract. He was making good money. And because of what he was being paid, he needed to, he needed to justify that by moving up the card. I think the consensus was, you know, there's always a doubt that Lex is ever going to get over. It just wasn't a natural fit for him. I don't know, it was a reach. It was a, a, we're grasping. And we thought if anybody could have a good match with uh, Lex and leading through like Flair had done, it would be Steamboat. Steamboat was, was, uh, was amazing. That's the thing that people overlook here in this situation. Even looking at this card, uh, for Fort Bragg on June 14th, uh, prior to the great American bash 89, that was, that card was loaded with hall of fame talent, free birds. Uh, of course we had the ding dongs on there. They'd be Cougar J and George South. Are you kidding me? Uh, midnight express one of the greatest tag teams of all time. Samoan SWAT team, another phenomenal team. Gordy and Williams are on that card. Uh, 
I mean, there were uh, the Steiner brothers on that card, Sting, and then, of course, Three Birds of Midnight Express uh, in the finals of the tag team tournament. It was loaded with top stars. And uh, so we forget sometimes how good that roster was, which also is pause for frustration that why weren't we doing better? we got a great roster of some really tremendous athletes who understand the business and have great skill sets. Why were we not drawing more money? It's because we were not giving the fans what they wanted to see, which is always one of the answers when things don't work. So, uh, and we couldn't find that combination apparently as to what's going to work, but it wasn't because we didn't have talent whatsoever, not whatsoever. It was just, we didn't have the right talent wrestling, the right people, apparently with the right reasons. Let's talk about something that, uh, finally comes to fruition. We talked earlier about how you guys are going to get a one hour show, this new NWA power hour on Friday night. Uh, this first episode features a segment called funks grill, which is Terry funks version of a Piper's pit. Uh, Missy Hyatt would do an interview with Ric Flair at home. And there would be a segment with. Gordon solely reading off wrestling headlines from the last week. Now he's of course, mostly going to focus on the NWA and in particular Lex Luger turning heel, but he's also briefly going to mention other promotions, which I find fascinating. You talk about world-class, uh, the Florida promotion, which of course, Gordon is heavily involved with and unbelievably the WWF, even going so far as to mention the new Hulk Hogan movie, no holds barred. This is something that wrestling companies rarely did back in this day. Uh, is this a Jim Hurd idea to acknowledge the competition? Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. He, uh, it was to expand our brand, to be more objective, to be more fan friendly. If, uh, if that would be the case. Uh, so fr- fans would get more from us than just our, uh, our, our political agenda. So, uh, but that was a hurt idea. And it wasn't well received because a lot of the old school guys, uh, uh, just fucking, excuse my language, but they just, they, they, they didn't want to change anything. They didn't want, they didn't want the old school to go away at all, but unfortunately it did screaming and kicking albeit. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I don't think that was a popular decision, but it was an interesting, I didn't hate it. Uh, but it was, took a little bit of getting used to. But it also, for me, because I worked very diligently to, to, to have a place for Gordon Soley, I felt like for us to give back to the wrestling community, and for me especially in my career, that Gordon Soley needed to be some part of, uh, of, 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 the, of the company. And we had to do some work around that when we shot his, his segments and when we flew him up and all that, I, I had to stop flying Gordon. We were going to fly Gordon in the morning, first flight out of Tampa, which he had no problem with. But then we found out, you know, that he, he would then go to the crown room in Atlanta and hang out after his flight landed for a few hours, eventually coming down to, to the downtown to the CN center to do his work. And when he got there, he was no, in no condition to work. You know, the vodka had, had commanded his spirit. And so we come up with a plan after I got my ass chewed out about making the hire to start with, we came up with a plan where we'd fly Gordon in and he would arrive in the afternoon. So we would know he's in house at the Omni hotel. Uh, and then we would begin his voiceovers 
the next morning. So we try to get ahead of the, uh, the, the screwdriver craze. So it was, a uh, it was, uh, we had to, we had to make special concessions and maybe I shouldn't have made special concessions, but I felt like there, that it was, he, it was owed to him to at least give it a try. Yeah. And I'm glad you did. I mean, he got back on TV and, uh, he was back where he belonged and, and you were a wrestling fan like us when you pulled that move and somebody in TBS was a big wrestling fan because, and again, keep in mind what we talked about at the top of the show, Meltzer reporting in June, that things are bleak and we're losing money hand over fist and the losses aren't going to start stop anytime soon, blah, blah, blah. In July, TBS has ordered a $1 million post-production facility for the wrestling company to use. Man, you've got to feel like this is a vote of confidence from the powers that be. Is it not? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that's what we needed. We needed our own production facility. And, uh, that just showed to me a commitment from the upper management that, you know, we're, we're in this thing for the long haul. And some guys didn't see it that way. Again, they were so caught up in the drama and the gossip and the bullshit from that booking committee and then interacting with Jim Hurd. Uh, that, uh, you know, they didn't, they, they overlooked that, but I, I felt like that was a hell of a commitment by TBS and that we built our own facility there in the CNN center, which is cool. And here to four have been using, uh, facilities over at Techwood at the old studio. So we had our own place. We could do production where we needed to night or day weekends, whenever it was, it, was, it worked out really good. So to me, that production facility was a sign of good news and commitment for us. Yeah. Without question, a million dollar investment, especially in 1989 is a significant investment. Uh, something else that I've wanted to ask about for a while, because we've, we've heard a lot of talk about this booking committee, the famed WCW booking committee. Meltzer would report that same week. Jim Ross is no longer a member of the booking committee, but is still putting together and producing the television show. The booking committee at this point is basically Eddie Gilbert, Kevin Sullivan, Jody Hamilton, Wahoo McDaniel, and Rick Flair. Chat me up. Is this true? And, uh, if so, how did you get on the booking committee and how did you get off? Well, I got on the booking committee through a uh, herd and I wanted to, uh, to create a committee to, to, uh, manufacture ideas and concepts and pitches and things of that nature. My job was, uh, how that booking committee, uh, a lot of times Tony Schiavone and I were, would get together and we would format the Sunday show. And we would format the Friday night show. And then, uh, I remember one, 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 one interesting night, he and I are working and we're waiting on Oli to get through with the Sunday show so we can put the whistles and bells to it and time it out and so forth. And, uh, so he never came through. He never, he said he, he, he was, so we go to, we go to his office. Hey, Oli, what's the status of the Sunday show? He said, I, I don't know. And I don't give a damn. You guys better write one. Cause if you don't, they're, gonna, they're not going to have a show this week. So that's another issue. You kind of deal with that stuff. But, uh, I, I, uh, I got tired of it. I saw futility. I, again, my philosophy then has not changed from what it is now. Active participants in the ring have a daunting task to, to remain objective and convince their roster that they are objective. So I still formatted the shows. I just take the moving parts of what was created. And then we would format a show, uh, cause it was a tape show, the Saturday or the, excuse me, the Friday night power hour and the Sunday, uh, main event show were all taped. So, uh, I wrote those shows and 
like I said, Tony and I collaborated on many occasions on that stuff, especially when Oli was a worker because he only, Oli wanted only wanted to do one show and he, he would write the Saturday night show cause it was tradition. It was establishment. It was a big foundation, but he didn't want to do anything else because he didn't think we should be having those where he thought our product then was going to be overexposed. So it was, uh, I just, I, I had enough. I'm done with it. So I didn't like how Dusty was treated. Uh, the, the revolving door of the, of the committee, you notice I wasn't the only guy off that committee. You know, you mentioned, uh, uh, Eddie Gilbert, whose lifelong goal was always to be a booker. Uh, Kevin Sullivan was close to Nate and a very bright guy. Jody Hamilton was in house. So he would make sure that, that we had the right amount of enhancement talent there and, and give, give ideas from time to time. Jody had another great mind. I don't think he and Nate got along great, which is not, not good. And then Wahoo was Rick's boy. And I love Wahoo. My God, he's an Oklahoma football legend. He still has the longest punt in the history of the university, 99 yards. So, uh, he's, uh, I think 90 something yards. This is amazing. So I, I, uh, uh, I just got tired Conrad. I, I had too much on my plate. I'm doing three shows now, Friday night, Saturday night, and Sunday. And I'm writing and I'm formatting two of them. Uh, so I had enough on my plate that I didn't need to be on the booking committee and sit there and listen to bullshit stories and stories of, uh, women and, uh, who got high or who got the drunkest or whatever. And it was like a good old boys club. It was like the, it was like a letterman's association or something. I just didn't think it was worth my, it was uh, not in my best interest to continue to be a part of that or that group. Cause I knew that that group as it was currently written was not going to be long-term something that I can't believe, uh, I found in my research is that, uh, at a house show in the Omni in early July, the Samoan SWAT team got a win over the road warriors. This almost never happened in this era. Uh, in this situation, Samu would hit animal with uh, Paulie's cell phone and then pinned him <clears throat> pretty rare to see the road warriors, uh, taking a pin here in 1989. Is it not? Yeah, very rare, but it was a uh, past due. Nobody's bulletproof. I mean, even Andre took some losses. Uh, I just believe that it created competition. The, the bottom line of that, this statement, Connie is we needed to get the, the Samoan SWAT team over, right? They were young. They were big. They were athletic. They're going to be great heels. They were amazingly versed in feeding a comeback at 300 pounds. They were extraordinarily special and one way to stamp them, uh, with the seal of approval is to get a controversial win over the road warriors. And I, I, I don't remember that being a big, uh, a big issue, quite frankly, I don't remember them whole, you know, balking or anything. They might have a boo-boo face, you know, uh, but that's not unusual in this business. People forget this stuff is fiction and <laughs> you're, you're cast in a role like you would be on a TV show, any TV show or a movie. And your role is to be a bad guy or a good guy. Your role is to win or to lose, whatever. But let's not get too wrapped up in a ceremony and get too wrapped up in egos here. It was the right thing to do because the, the, the Samoans were young, athletic, big, convincing. I, I love that team. And, uh, they were, well, we, they, and the road wars, to their credit, were like the, the, the bull of the woods, as Dusty would say, in the tag team world. So them, uh, helping the Samoan SWAT team get over was the right thing to do because at the end of the day, 
when they, these two teams would meet down the road, uh, you would have a situation where the road warriors had a cause and they had some reason to be motivated in this regard. And so it built up to their, to a bigger level singles match other than what happened at a house show. I think the house show thing was basically to see how everybody was, how, how politically acceptable this matter is going to be. And if Hawk and Allen are going to be cool with it, but I think they're smart enough to also to know you definitely don't want to breach your contract because you didn't want to lose in a, in a, in a fake fight. One of the things I, uh, am happy to report here is that Meltzer tells the good news of what Turner is doing for WCW and the NWA come mid July. He says over the past week or really past weeks, I think a lot of questions have been answered as to what kind of commitment TBS has to professional wrestling. The showing of wrestling highlights between games of Braves double headers was a move that shows at this point, wrestling is a major part of the TBS operation. Since then, we've seen Michael Hayes do a commercial for night tracks, which is a Friday night rock video show on TBS. We've seen 15 minute special segments taped and aired at various times before and after baseball games, giving updates on the NWA scene and hyping the upcoming pay-per-view shows. And we've seen wrestling grouped in with other legitimate sports like baseball and track and the TBS sports Saturday lineup on the promos and throughout the month, the NWA baby faces, Ric Flair, the road warrior sting and Rick Steiner will be taping national ads for the St. Louis based kangaroo athletic wear. Most of the problems we've discussed on these pages remain and the NWA is a long way from being where it needs to be for long-term survival. However, these actions show that TBS doesn't appear to be in any hurry to call it quits at any time soon, as people have speculated. Besides, anyone who's followed the history of TBS, CNN, and other Turner Ventures have seen that things never look good in the beginning, but they have survived and, in fact, become institutions. And, of course, we could bring up the Atlanta Braves. Uh, <laughs> so there you go. All of a sudden, you know, in, in the span of 60 days, everything looks a whole lot different here for the NWA. And, uh, any sort of rumors or whisper campaigns that are going through the office, they've got to be quieting down when you see this commitment from TBS, right? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think everybody got a, a sigh of relief. They saw the continuing commitment from TBS. They were in it for the long haul. They, they said that all along, but in normal pro wrestling skepticism and, and being, uh, and most pro wrestlers are cynic, uh, uh, what's that word I'm looking for? They're cynical. Uh, Cynical. Yeah. Sorry. Thank you very much. Uh, so I believe that sometimes pro wrestling people, especially today, because they're so dependent on social media, thrive on drama. They thrive on the negative and they, and they feel compelled to, uh, respond on Twitter. You know, you and I are on Twitter. We, we enjoy the experience. I enjoy interacting with the fans, but I'm sure as hell not going to uh, you know, live or die by what, you know, I get, I get blasted on, there's not a, there's not an AEW show that some, somebody is nailing me because I didn't, I, I use the word Oriental instead of Asian, or I didn't call a short arm scissors. Like I had forgotten what a fucking short arm scissors was. Was it a big deal that I didn't call the short arm scissors? Was it the finish folks? No, it was a transitional move. So why do we have to identify all of them? And the other thing is, well, JR doesn't call some of these moves, you know, Excalibur is very, very good. I love working with this kid. He's really good, but you know, he's, he uses all his terms on these holes, you know, suicide, uh, tope, whatever he uses uh, the, the Spanish side of this thing. 
And that's what kind of throws me off sometimes because I didn't, I wasn't raised with using holes, uh, calling holes names, uh, that were kind of niche. Uh, I just wasn't, you know, uh, body slams and body slam. And, but now everybody's got a name because they use that on social media to identify themselves and create identity. Uh, I just, sometimes social media, uh, is a pain in the ass. Uh, so because how, how some people react on it, but I, I, uh, I, I, I just thought that things are trying to calm down, but you still got the same guy trying to hold that rudder in the water. You still got chaos. You got a man, a, 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 a VP that likes drama. He should, he should be, if, if heard was uh, still active today, he would love social media because he could bitch at people. He could create controversy. He could lash out, could be negative and, and, uh, just, he should have stayed out of it. He should have, he had to stay in his lane, bro. And he didn't know how to do that. Let's get in our lane. Let's talk about the great American bash. Uh, it's, it's a little unique. This is an afternoon start. I think it starts at four 30 Eastern, which is almost unheard of today. I kind of dug it though. what do you think of these afternoon starts for pay-per-views? I'm only assuming that we did that because of the window that was available to us on most cable systems and satellite providers, uh, to carry the pay-per-view. As far as I was concerned, I had no issues with it. Much like my favorite TVs for WWE back in the day were on the West coast because we started early and we finished early. So give you a little bit of your day back. You started your day earlier, but your day is going to end earlier. And I kind of like that uh, trade off. Uh, didn't have a problem with it. I think that probably taking it out of the traditional pay-per-view window may have affected, uh, the number of buys. Uh, but I might be wrong on that too. I, I like tradition. I like consistency, but overall, not a problem whatsoever. Let's talk a little bit about, uh, the way you guys promoted this, uh, the Monday prior to the pay-per-view, uh, the NWA purchased ads in primetime wrestling, which predates raw as the WWF's Monday night show. And, uh, that's a little bit of poetic justice because, uh, somehow, WrestleMania ads were purchased inside of two clash of the champions, which is kind of fun. <laughs> yeah. Uh, talk to me a little bit about who would have been the guy negotiating or figuring out, or I mean, who came up with the game plan to say, Hey man, let's just advertise inside their programming and they won't sell it to us. So let's just contact their major markets. So in LA or Chicago or New York or whatever, and buy it from those cable systems. Yeah, it was a good idea. I'm not sure. I would say it's probably a, a combined effort. It was a little bold, but, uh, again, Turner was willing to spend the money and to be bold. To me, it was a rifle shot to your target audience. Uh, if you're, if you want to attract a wrestling fan to watch the great American bash, 1989, uh, then getting your sales message to those wrestling fans, watching another product was, uh, smart. Smart marketing, good product placement, made sense. I'm sure Heard had a hand in it. So he would like that kind of thing. He'd like the controversy. He'd like, you know, putting a, a burn or Vince's saddle, so to speak. And uh, so I think Heard would be a big part of that, uh, that, that buy being made. But we had a lot of other guys. You know, we had Steve Chamberlain was there, worked for Turner Home Entertainment. He was a very progressive guy. He was a big wrestling fan, a good guy. Uh, very, very, very well thought of there in the Turner organization. And a lot of these younger guys just, you know, by natural, their natural instincts, Conrad, were, uh, to be a little, uh, defiant. 
and but we didn't break any laws and they had to go a roundabout way of getting it done but also remember that the cable systems were a lot of those cable companies were partners for turner so when we were trying to build our pay-per-view business uh it was kind of no holds barred last man standing type scenario uh so i i, I think uh we i think it was a smart move and i and I know that we did the same thing. Some of the cable systems got pissed off because uh, we ran the Clash of Champions head-to-head against one of the uh, a WWE pay-per-view, maybe the Survivor Series, wherever it was. Or it could have been WrestleMania. Hell, I don't remember. But to me, it's competition. Uh, I thought that might have been a little too far, and so did the, our cable partners because they felt like it uh, helped lessen the number of buys on the WWE pay-per-view because you could watch our show, the clash of champions free in prime time and a loaded card to boot. So, uh, but the cable companies didn't like it because, uh, WWE doth protested too loudly. And, uh, so we didn't, we weren't able to do that anymore as far as going head to head, but that would have been a competition. That's what the old school wrestling people want to do. Make us go the same night, the same stuff, much like the Monday night wars. And let the audience make a decision. Let's get to the show. The card opens with a two ring King of the Hill battle Royal and the wrestlers who were never really announced individually came to the ring and they've all got like gimmick crowns with them. Yeah. <laughs> Stupid. <laughs> embarrassing, man. It was really embarrassing. What the, I mean, you got distinguished wrestlers, uh, you know, it's just. It looked like a commercial for, for a margarine, that empire, uh, imperial margarine, the, the crowns. It just made no sense. It was silly. Burger King level silly. Um, yeah. Meltzer would say stupid as a cheap in the match. Battle Royals are basically dead these days and two rings is awfully hard to televise, but as a live match, this was a very good battle Royal. Uh, everyone was working hard and there's a lot of stars in there, by the way, Scott Hall, yeah. Ranger Ross, Ron Simmons, Brian Pillman, Bill Irwin, Danny Spivey, Sid vicious, the Steiner brothers, Kevin Sullivan, Mike Rotundo, Steve Williams, and, uh, Meltzer would say maybe a few others. It winds up being Pillman and vicious and ring one and Williams, uh, Rotunda and Spivey in the second ring. Eventually it comes down to the skyscrapers. And we've got, uh, Sid in one ring, Spivey in the other, Teddy long is going to jump in the ring and say, there's no chance his guys are going to fight each other. And instead they're going to split the $50,000 and they give uh, Teddy long, this burger King crown. And there you go. He gave it three stars. I know that, you know, you've sort of uh, beat up on battle Royals and, and I get that, but this one got three stars. What'd you think? Well, talent makes the matches Conrad, and there's a lot of good talent in that match that, uh, just wanted to go out and perform and didn't have a bunch of, a bunch of agendas. Uh, I was pleasantly surprised because in the dozens, maybe hundreds of battle Royals that I've called the vast majority of them suck. And you see guys loping, they, they're punches, uh, and God bless. We got to throw punches because that's the only offense we know. I uh, wouldn't break an egg guys laughing, playing grab ass. Uh, just not good. I remember Bill Watts booking a battle Royal one time around the loop first blood battle Royal. So you, you had 20 guys in a battle Royal and the only, and the winner is a guy that wasn't bleeding. It was, it was serious shit and but it was too much blood, but the first blood battle Royal was a gimmick to, to hot shot a house, 
but it didn't mean that the battle rolls are good. It just means you got a lot of color. Yeah. Not, I mean, here's the deal. What's weird about this to me is as soon as it's over now, remember two of the participants, Brian Pillman, Bill Irwin, as soon as it's over the next match, Brian Pillman versus Bill Irwin. So these guys get eliminated. You know, they run down with their Burger King crowns. They wrestle their battle Royal. They get eliminated. They go to the back and then they come right back down the ramp for another match immediately. No break in between. And, and we would see Brian Pillman pin Bill Irwin in 10 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, really good showing from Brian Pillman. Uh, this is one of his, um, sort of coming out parties for sure. You can tell this guy's going to be a star and mm-hmm. what a big move it is when he's just doing the big splash mm-hmm. off the top. But I mean, that was such a spectacular move in 89 Meltzer would call it, uh, a good preliminary match. He said it had solid pacing and good execution, two and a half stars, uh, Brian Pillman and what would be the goon. What'd you think? Uh, Pillman was, uh, always loved Brian. You know, Brian was an interesting, how Brian got to WCW from Calgary, uh, that, uh, I, I met, I met, uh, Brian's PR guy unofficially was a fellow named, uh, Kim Wood, Kim Woods. He, Kim is, a was for years and years, the strength and condition coach for the Cincinnati Bengals. And, uh, he be- befriended Brian. Uh, because Brian was on the Bengals team for a while, won the Ed Block Courage Award as a the most inspirational Bengal that year on their team. So when Brian went to Calgary uh, to train, uh, actually he, he started training after he left the Calgary Stampeders. He always loved wrestling. This is he, he got his dream was to be a pro wrestler because he knew his size was going to be detrimental to be an NFL star. Uh, so Ken Wood uh, really. Uh, uh, campaign for me. I think Melcher may have given, given Kim my address, uh, because, because Melcher had it from his subscription list. Cause I subscribed to the observer then and now, uh, that, uh, you know, we, 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 we believe deeply in Brian. It was going to be a star and, uh, I still love the kid. I mean, he's like a little brother to me, honorary as hell, but I loved him. I still do miss him. And I'm very much pulling for his son, Brian Pillman Jr., who I believe has a great upside. And quite frankly, I'd love to see him in AEW someday, just, just being quite transparent. But nonetheless, uh, we, we had high expectations for Brian, athletic, tough, unique, uh, just, uh, just everything he'd want. The passion was unparalleled. So, uh, he's. He got noticed, uh, he got noticed quite prominently and I'm glad that we at least had the chance to get him jump started and, and get his career on, 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 a, on some sort of upper mobility. The next match is really something you got to go out your way, your way to see, uh, underneath it's the dynamic dudes, Shane Douglas is going to go on to be the franchise and ECW world champion. And, uh, we all know the career that he had and Johnny Ace who had had uh, quite the career for himself in Japan. But what we all know him for is his office work with the world wrestling federation. Um, they're going to take on unsuccessfully the skyscrapers, which we just mentioned were in that battle Royal Dan Spivey and Sid vicious. Now what's fascinating about this is the crowd is in love with Sid vicious. I can't overstate this. When you watch this back, it's something to see, to be clear, the dynamic dudes are coming out. Throwing frisbees to kids. That's a real thing. And riding skateboards and they got neon colors and they're as white meat baby face as you can get. And these skyscrapers are coming out wearing all black grimacing at everyone. 
And every time Spivey's in there, the crowd is chanting, we want Sid. And when Spivey would tag in Sid, the place goes bananas. When Sid tags back out, they start booing and chanting, we want Sid. It's unbelievable. I mean, a star is born here and, and this is all just based on look for Meltzer would even say the guy has big star written all over him. Even if his work <clears throat> isn't to the level of the rest of the NWA stars, the crowd seemed to cheer the heels more than the faces early, but instead of switching, they just reacted to vicious, which is just unbelievable to me that he gets this level reaction. The match is what it is. It only gets one star. Uh, Spivey is going to finally pin Johnny Ace after a messed up power bomb. Not a good looking finish, but Sid, oh my gosh, he has money dripping off of him here. What do you, what do you credit to that? It's all look, right? It's all height. It's all muscularity. Uh, look it, he had it Conrad. He had charisma and it, and whether he knew what he was doing the, uh, in connecting with his audience or it just was happening organically, it was what it was. Uh, we missed an opportunity there. Your audience will give you so much market research that's invaluable, but for that to come to fruition and to be utilized correctly, uh, uh, the promotion has to listen and pay attention. I don't know that Sid was considered by the booking committee as, uh, uh, unknown commodity. Sid's a little different cat, uh, but he didn't get the hand. He didn't get the fair shake that he probably should have. Quite frankly, if you had one booker making one decision and you saw what happened in that match, you'd say to make yourself a note, turn Sid face because he would be me meaning more as a single baby face, not ha all he has to do is sell and he can sell and then make a comeback and, and power bomb somebody's ass. And you got, there you are. He was an attraction type guy. He was not going to be steamboat. He's not going to be flair. He's not going to be any of those guys that could give you 60 minutes. I don't want to see Sid in a 60 minute match. Whether he could do it or not is irrelevant. I don't want to see that. Uh, so we missed the boat there. And it was a matter of, uh, I think a lot of politics and for whatever reason, some of those on the booking committee did not have confidence that Sid could, uh, could maintain, uh, you know, his professionalism or consistency. Could we trust him? Is he reliable? We didn't know yet. And, but I think we've made a huge mistake there. And those are kind of some of those decisions are why I wanted to get off the damn booking committee. Just, it made no, this, it was. It was like a dog chasing its tail. It just wasn't a good progression. Next up, we've got something kind of fun, especially knowing what we know now. Jim Cornette and Paulie Dangerously are going to have a match here. It's a tuxedo street fight. And they got six minutes and 22 seconds. Meltzer gives it a star in three quarters. Um, you know, it's funny because Bruce Pritchard has said these guys are basically the same person. You know, just <laughs> one, one's a Yankee and, and one's a Southerner. And really outside of that, they're the same. I really enjoyed this match and I was just sort of shocked. And I'm not saying this to be funny at how good of a fucking performer Jim Cornette was not just at being a manager, but here he's wrestling a match. And I know there's the old Bobby Heenan, you know, you got to manage like a wrestler and wrestle like a manager, but God, he just nailed it here. I was really impressed with this. And of course we know Cornette's going to get the win. He's going to rip off, uh, Paulie's, uh, uh, pants and he's got these blue underpants and he runs to the dressing room a la brother love at WrestleMania five. what do you think of this one? Watching it back. 
It was a gimmick match that uh, I thought was well executed. You know, Bill Watts used to say when we first started, when Cornette first came to Mid-South with the Midnight Express and what an act they were, what a tremendous uh, uh, unit uh, and a lot of uh, respect for those guys. Uh, I don't think I ever saw a better heel team than uh, Dennis Condry and Bobby Eaton and, of course, managed by Cornette, who's in another level from Cornette's in that Heenan level as far as managers are concerned and adding the element of physicality into it because when we first started that uh, angle there with Cornette and he had the issue of cowboy, uh, we found out very quickly that Cornette was a lot better worker than we wanted him to be. He actually could drop an elbow and he could do things that were, uh, unmanager like, and speak to what you said about Heenan, you know, you got to manage like a wrestler and wrestle like a manager. Corny had a hard time wrestling like a manager. He was, he was very good. So Cowboy had to tone him down a little bit on what he did or what he didn't do. The main thing people wanted to see was him get embarrassed, humiliated and, and sacrificed. So that was Cowboy's theory. And it worked out really well. That's they came to see Cornette get his comeuppance, but in that match with Paul E and Corny, the, the great thing about that match was I thought one of the great things was the promos leading into it. Right. They're, they're class, they're, they're timeless. So uh, I'm happy. Both those guys came through. I don't you quote with the star thing and this star and that star, you know, who, I don't know, whatever, but they did a good job for what the match is set up to be. It's set to be a gimmick match, an attraction match, a, a special feature type match, but not a main event level match. But we had two hall of fame managers, two hall of fame performers that certainly brought it and executed a very entertaining piece of business. So I, I, I liked it. I, I don't know if it was a half-ass rib on both guys. I have no idea. That could have been because Cornette, I don't think, was on the booking committee at that time either. Uh, so, and 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 Heyman was always notoriously unpopular in the WCW booking committee uh, confines. So I don't know if it was an inside joke, inside rib. Uh, I've been personally affected by plenty of inside jokes, inside ribs. I, I don't need to see another one in my life. But uh, those guys came through, and I'm. I, I think they did it in spite of what was expected. I think a lot of people thought, well, we'll get even with those guys, their match will suck. It'll stink and we'll be able to bust their balls. And that didn't happen. Next up, we got Rick Steiner and Scott Steiner in a tornado match beating, uh, Mike Rotundo and Kevin Sullivan. They're going to go four minutes and 42 seconds. It gets two and a half stars. Uh, I got to tell you, I was a little disappointed in this one. I know you're a big fan of the uh, varsity club. I'm a huge Steiner fan, but this Mm -hmm. one was a little bit of a letdown to me. I didn't love it. What'd you think? Well, chemistry, I I just, there was not a lot of chemistry in that match, uh, for whatever reason. And, uh, I, I was a little disappointed in it as well because there's no reason it should have been good. Uh, Rick and Scott Steiner are great as good a tag team as I've seen in years and rotunda have always respected Mike's work and Kevin Sullivan was just an evil genius. It just, it wasn't their day and the chemistry wasn't there. And maybe they had this, uh, uh, the aftermath or the aftertaste of the varsity club being, uh, disavowed, but I, I, I didn't, I was a little disappointed in myself when watching it back. It was as bad as I thought it was that night but it could have been so much better. And that's how I was left with that. This should have been a lot better than it was. Uh, even though it got two and a half stars by Meltzer, uh, it was just, it didn't click that night. And sometimes that happens. 
Next up, we've got uh, Sting and the Great Muda, which I think a lot of people, when they see on paper, think is just going to be a barn burner. Uh, the finish, though, left a lot to be desired. Three and a quarter stars. They're going to go to a no decision here. It's for the television title. Uh, Sting opens up with a, a dive from one ring to the other, which is kind of fun. You know, Sting wants the match to happen in his ring. Muda wants the, ma- the match to happen in his ring. So Sting just dives over there, which is kind of fun. Uh, lots of fun moves here that uh, you probably didn't see a lot of in 1989. Uh, I think Moodle was ahead of his time. No debate in that. Uh, Meltzer would say finished saw Moodle try to blow miss sting ducked it. And it went into Nick Patrick's eyes and then sting missed the stinger splash and Muda hit the moonsault press as Tommy young came out, but sting kicked out at two sting then uses a back suplex and young counts three, even though both guys shoulders are up. I mean, I don't think stings were even close here. It's announced that Sting is the winner and still champion, but a few minutes later, Muda grabs the title belt and leaves. And none of this is actually explained to the live crowd. And Meltzer would say, in reality, they're going to hold up the title, saying that both men's shoulders were up and they'll, you know, live to fight another day. He gave it three and a quarter stars. Uh, the, the finish, though, man, talk about a big build and then just sort of. Weak. It was weak. Yeah. A week. It's like having that. Uh... It's like having this hot woman with you and you don't have a blue chew handy. Things go limp sometimes <laughs> sticking for a friend. Sure. <laughs> uh, of course. Uh, but yeah, it was a, it, the finish. It shows you how important the finishes are, right? You got to do a great finish and work backwards. And all they were trying to do is get this match on the books because it had box office appeal and a lot of sizzle Two of our hottest young stars. And they were. Uh, going at it, but the, the committee was afraid to pull the trigger uh, using the old wrestler logic that they would utilize in their own matches. Well, we can't beat him and we can't beat him. Why? Why? Because you don't want your buddy to do a job. Is that what you're projecting here? Uh, I didn't like the finish. I thought there was plenty of ways to get around that and get a quick one, two, three, have a decision. And keep it open so that you could uh, come back and fight another day. It was the finish is poorly thought out. Uh, it was inconclusive, it, and it uh, I just thought it was uh, terrible. If you think that them getting three and a quarter stars operating on a lousy finish, this match that had had a good finish would have been a four or maybe even a five star match, but that's not the case. The finish. Uh, destroyed that, that, uh, that, that concept. So bad, bad on again, on the, on the finishes, try to appease everybody and make sure it's, you know, that 50, 50 bullshit is just a kiss of death. You see it all the time. Now guy goes over before he can get his hand raised and enjoy a victory. He's attacked by the guy he just beat. So they could, that, that could quote unquote, get their heat back. Right. I, I'd laugh at that. And I'd laugh at those that believe that to be true. I'd laugh at your face, in your face, <laughs> at your face, in your face, on your face. Uh, you get faced. You don't get no FaceTime with me on that deal. I just think it was silly. Uh, and we, again, it was just, nobody wanted to get, nobody wanted to ask the other guy to do a job. Silly, stupid, but we did. And it affected the match. But I tell you, I, we were so lucky to have those guys on our roster. You know, you look back at this card, we had a, 
as I mentioned earlier, Conrad, this is a hell of a, hell of a card, but loaded with talent. Yeah. And, and Muda is a new, relatively new addition. I think he debuted in March and here we are just a few months later and he's working with Sting as well. He should be. I mean, the, the fans were really, really into this and they were into the next one too. You talk about hall of fame talent. It's Lex Luger and Ricky steamboat. The United States title is on the line. Uh, Luger is your U S champ and he's going to retain by DQ in 10 minutes and 26 seconds. Hello DQ non-finish. We had just had one, the master four. We had one earlier in the card. Can nobody win or lose again? Politics, uh, nepotism, whatever other little cute word you want to throw in there was very alive and well with that, with, with, with booking committees that are still working in the ring. It just, it can't be, it's a system that is designed to fail and they do, they all do at some point in time, uh, without, without tweaks being made. And I get on today's marketplace, it may be different, but back when the old school was really prominent, uh, it was a tough challenge to get past the decision makers to actually beat somebody. Well, we don't want to beat him. Well, we don't want to beat him. It's a finish. And if you're smart and creative enough, you do a finish where you do have a winner and you work the match to where it could have gone either way. And you, the talents are so motivated that you can't wait to see them again. So that, that's, I, that don't hold water to me. And it's just, that's, that happens a lot when back in the day, when the bookers, whether it be cowboy, Bill Watts or Fritz von Eric or Vern Gagne, Eddie Graham, when the, the top dog in the territory was also the top baby face or a top baby face. It's to protect, they, they did those finishes to protect, protect their, them and their ego. Bad trend. We still see it today. The, uh, backstory to this show is Lex Luger regained the U S title from Michael Hayes on May 22nd on June 14th, which we already covered in Fort Bragg is where we would see steamboat be attacked by Lex Luger, seemingly turning heel out of nowhere. 10 days later on TV, Luger would say in an interview that he attacked steamboat because he's tired of making the fans happy and wanted to prove himself better than steamboat. And on July 1st, it would be announced that he's going to be defending his United States championship against steamboat. So where flair moves on, uh, from the, his world title feud with Ricky steamboat to now being in a bit of a blood feud with Terry funk steamboat is now going to be working with Lex Luger, uh, for the United States championship. This is a, uh, a DQ match here. And, um, that's the way it's set up. Meltzer would say this was an excellent match, which is probably the only reason fans weren't upset with the DQ finish, even though the actual sequence of finish was excellent and popped the crowd like crazy. Four weeks ago on TV, it was announced this would be no DQ and the booking sheet all along listed it as a no DQ. And a few weeks later, team uh, steamboat does a TV interview issuing the challenge for a no DQ, forgetting the fact that on at least two occasions, uh, it was already advertised as no DQ, but Luger continually refused to do the no DQ. And on TBS the day before the show, it was announced that it wouldn't be a no DQ, but instead a regular <laughs> rules match. So nobody knows this is who's on first of the NWA. Yeah. Uh, the ring announcer announces it's no DQ. And then Luger grabs the mic and says, if it's no DQ, he's going to leave. But if it's regular rules, he'll stay. And, uh, eventually he refuses the no DQ. And so we're back and forth. I will, I'll do it this way, but not for the belt. And we're doing all of this in front of the fans, by the way. And eventually we get our match 
steamboat goes nuts with a chair, uh, and clobbers him. Uh, it's a, a really, a pretty good match. Meltzer gives it four and a quarter stars, which is probably one of the highest rated Lex Luger matches ever. Uh, he would really compliment Lex Luger as his heel work here. He would say he's a tremendous heel with his mannerisms and he seemed genuinely, genuinely upset with the fans. So it's, it's good stuff, but this whole hokey pokey with the no DQ thing, it's a little bit of a head scratcher. Is it not? Absolutely. Indecisive decision-making by the booking committee, uh, too many personal agendas at play, just not, not good, not good at all. And we confuse the mark. We, we confuse our own marketplace with our, with our ineptness and inability to make a damn decision. And again, those decisions were made to, uh, placate moody talents or to not, or somebody's got an idea for an angle in the booking committee and this, the, the, they perceive that a loss or not doing things the quote unquote right way, whatever that means is, uh, is something that we had to deal with. So it's this silly. Is this another example of too many cooks in the kitchen? No doubt. And, uh, maybe there's too many in the kitchen for Ricky steamboat. This is his last, uh, televised appearance for the company. I think his contract was up uh, a week or so, a week or so later, he winds up not resigning and he's gone. The next time we would see him pop up, it would be for the WWF when he would become a fire breathing dragon. Mm-hmm. Uh, what did you think of, um, his decision to not come to terms and, and, and why wasn't a new contract able to be done here? Well, the, I, I was a bad move by us, but I say us, I was there. I wasn't negotiating contracts. If I had been negotiating contracts, he would not have left. I would not have let that happen by any, if I could, uh, he, he's a class act as Rick. He still is hall of fame guy, legit as good a worker as I ever called a match for. I can promise you that. Uh, and he's also great in the locker room, classy, professional, took time to help the younger talents. A lot of things that you don't see on television that's important to know is there. So, uh, it was just a, uh, it, we needed a, you want to keep quality in your locker room, whether just to be working and as a human being, as a, as a professional. And that's what Ricky was. That was a big issue, uh, to me was letting, you know, Ricky escaping cause he had had that. Remember he's coming off three of the greatest matches in the history of the company with Rick, those three, those three matches in 89 and, uh, just, he, he, he got himself back on the map. You know, he, 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 he got two big wins over Rick. Uh, then finally loses it in the wrestle war. Then that pers- facilitated the angle with Terry and the pile driving on the chair. But Ricky was not Ricky steamboat was not damaged goods. He was simply, uh, he, they didn't want to pay him what he, what he believed he was worth. And I believe that that situation could have been rectified by communicating. God almighty, just communicate with these talents. It's always us against them. And boy, we got the budget. No bullshit. So somebody had. Somebody didn't want Steamboat to be around because he hadn't understood the business and he, he's, he's always going to get over because he's so damn good at what he does. So I, I, I thought that was a big mistake. I thought that was not a smart move on our behalf. Uh, cause anytime you can get a Ricky Steamboat in your locker room and on your team, you do it. No doubt about it. Let's get to the next match here on the show. Uh, this is the reason we've got the double rings. It's a war games match. 
Uh, the baby face fivesome will be the road warriors and the midnight express and Dr. Death, Steve Williams. They're going to take on these dastardly heels, the Samoan SWAT team and the Freebirds. They're going to go 22 minutes and 18 seconds. Uh, Hawk is going to make Jim Garvin, uh, submit to a hangman hold, which you've got to see if you've never seen this as a finish before, you know, when you just hear that, you're like, I don't even really know what that is. You need to see it. It looks legit. Uh, it's four-star match. Meltzer really loved it. Uh, it's hard not to, I guess. This is probably one of the more underrated war games matches. I really enjoyed this one. What'd you think? Loved it. Uh, you know, I'm always going to be biased to my late friend, uh, Dr. Destiny Williams, my Oklahoma buddy, you know, he's like a little brother. You know, we brought him, uh, for a lot of people don't remember the doc cowboy bill Watts broke Dr. Death in between Doc's junior and senior year of college of which he was going to come back to college. And he did and play his fourth year of football for OU. He went to four bowl games. He was, you know, four time wrestling, all American legit. Uh, so anytime, uh, any, anytime that, uh, doc was in a match, I, I kind of got my pulse up because I had such an emotional investment in him. Uh, but he, uh, he, he military pressed Terry Gordy at 300 pounds, eight times. And I remember it touching the top of the cage, the cage, the, 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 vert, the top of the cage is could have probably been stood to be a little, little taller, but doc military pressed a 300 pound live weight eight times in that match. And that's what I remember most prominently about that presentation. I just believe that, you know, you look at that nucleus there, uh, think about it, road warriors and midnight. Now that also includes Jim Cornette's brain and his presence. That's big. And Dr. Death, uh, they, and they, the slow and SWAT team, we, we, we got that win for them, uh, over, uh, the road warriors, the house show. So they, they got, they're getting a little bit of something going free birds were established big time hall of fame team. And they had Terry Gordy, who's extraordinary. As a matter of fact, we just celebrated the, uh, the passing of Terry about a week ago, uh, uh, and he's greatly missed. So in any event, uh, I thought the match overexceeded, but I'm not, after looking back at it, how could we be surprised that an array of this kind of talent and the brain power, you know, Hayes had a great booking mind, still does Cornette. Non, he's not non, non-paralleled in his booking, uh, Ackerman, uh, road warriors and doc are good. They run the plays, did a great job. Uh, Jimmy Garvin was another smart guy, uh, uh, finish wise. So we had the brain power and the athleticism and some little stories going into it. And they had the, the road, the, uh, war games scenario that had kind of had a little following at that point in time. I'm surprised that somebody hasn't really, uh, uh, utilized that more. Uh, in here in, the, in this this generation, but it's not not there yet. But uh, I thought it was really good. I thought it was really good, uh, and I loved it. It was physical. Uh, just guys took chances. They were doing things. If you go back and watch that now, Conrad, people say, "Well, I saw that last week on uh, AEW, or I saw this on such such and such." Well, but then it was new. All, a lot of innovation, a lot of risk taking. And, uh, but again, the Dr. Death, eight military presses of a 300 pound human being was just uh, captivating. And I'll tell you something, man, whether they were partners or adversaries, doc and Gordy had amazing chemistry. It was a, it was a match. You just want to, you couldn't take your eyes off of it because it's two big, big old bulls that love to beat the hell out of each other. 
And I used to say this all the time. I said, when, when Doc and Gordy fought the Steiners in WCW in, in tag matches, they were so physical that a lot of the guys would say, you know, I don't really need to work with Dr. Gordy or the Steiners because they're stiff. They're physical. Yeah, they are. And you got to bring your lunch because you're going to be there a while. So it was a, it was good. I, I enjoyed that match. It's an unsung war games classic that has been largely forgotten by many fans. And again, because it happened Conrad in 1989, a lot of fans, a lot of our audience haven't seen it yet. So I, I, I encourage that one for sure. But, uh, I, I was very pleased and proud of how those guys performed. Next up our main event, Rick Flair is going to make his return to the ring after his second longest ring absence of his career. Of course, the first one being, uh, when he went down in a plane crash and he's going to pin Terry Funk here in 17 minutes and 23 seconds to retain the NWA title. And Meltzer would say this was not your typical flair match. In fact, it was simply a brawl, both inside and outside the ring from bell to bell with double juice of the heavy variety. The juice literally stunned the crowd into silence since this is Maryland and that stuff isn't allowed. However, the NWA basically quote, challenged the commission on its anti-blood position before the card and won. the commissioners actually left prior to the start of this match. So they wouldn't have to actually be there for the carnage. Funk came to ringside with Gary Hart and, uh, yeah, mood is going to be involved here at the end. I guess we should mention that, uh, before we do though, the finish is uh, something you've seen before in a few other flare matches. Uh, Funk goes for the inside cradle and, and Funk has it reversed by Ric Flair. Ric Flair gets the pin from that inside cradle being reversed. And that brings out Muda and he's going to spit the mist into Flair's eyes. And they start to double team him until our hero sting comes in and makes the save. They're doubling on him. And eventually the baby faces make a comeback. They're choking guys with uh, mic cords and cables and hitting people with chairs that look like they belong in schoolrooms. But the crowd is on fire for this. There's a little time left in the show. You and Bob Cottle are trying to wrap up. Flair comes over, does an impassioned impromptu promo covered in blood and carrying the world title. They ended this show at the most fever pitch. I think I can remember a pay-per-view having a finish. I mean, the match was great, but the post-match stuff was just tremendous. Uh, it was five, it was five Conrad. It was five minutes long. The post-match was about five minutes in length. So it's, it's, that's highly unusual. Normally it's a hit and run bang, 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 boom out. But this was, I thought was the, it reminded me of the, the never ending story. We had, it was the longest post-match and most significant and meaningful post-match that I could ever remember calling. It just went longer than you would ever expect to see. And it all worked. It all fed right into this is unfinished business and all the people that were involved in that match, uh, got over Terry Funk proved that he was amazingly talented. I also always can think Terry Funk's one of the top five workers I ever saw in my life. And he's in there with Rick. So, you know, we know what everybody, I think about, about Rick, two of the greatest of all time. How can it be bad? Did you bring Gary Hart into the element? Very under underrated manager that a lot of people have not seen. He's phenomenal. And Muda was going to, was that budding star. He had it was going to be a major star, which he ended up proving he was a major star, not only in WCW, but in new Japan. So he's, uh, it was, it, it, it had too many great elements to, that we couldn't screw that up. And you kind of let, when you got a funk and a flare and a heart, 
you kind of let them lay out their match. Why wouldn't you? Why would you want somebody else to lay out to these experts, these Rembrandts of this wrestling canvas to not, uh, do their thing. And so you, you know what you want. You want flare over, but you want to keep the angle alive. So instead of having a, a, a DQ or a count out or something lame, uncreative, uh, and non-committal, we had a finish. It pissed off Funk because he lost and his shot to get the title back, but he made a hell of an impression. It kept the storyline alive and, uh, and, and, and Rick and, and Terry just had, I thought terrific, uh, 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 chemistry. So I, I, I liked the finish, but the, when I was watching this back this morning and yesterday, uh, I was amazed at how, how long the post match was and how effective it was. It's just what you get when you got two great talents and they are allowed to tell your story. They got the outline. It's like giving bullet points in a promo, say this, talk about the, 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 the date, the venue and your opponent and the go make a promo. And that's kind of what we did there. Flare over something close, keep the angle alive. And they did that. That's the same finish that uh, I think Briscoe and funk did in 1970, uh, where, uh, the small package, i.e. the inside cradle uh, was reversed. It's a very easy fin finish to execute. It's believable. It makes sense. And it, it shows that anybody can lose any time. And I, I love that it is it, one of my favorite matches to call. Because of all the moving parts, I thought Bob Cottle was especially good in that match. I love working with Bob, the voice of Mid-Atlantic Championship Wrestling. Uh, you know, Bob was another guy that was kind of forgotten because the booking committees that could care less. They said, well, we got Jr. out there. Let's put anybody with him. It don't matter. Well, it does matter. Uh, and Bob was another guy that was kind of on the scrap heap unnecessarily. And so. I got Paul to, or got to Bob to be my partner and I loved every minute of it. He's so wonderful to travel with, you know, uh, we just had a great rapport. I saw him last year at Wrestlecade, great event there in Winston Salem during Thanksgiving weekend with his uh, lovely wife and, uh, just, a what a man, what a wonderful man. And I love him. I really do. Uh, he's getting older and, and but he's still got that great voice. He's got a wonderful heart and I love Bob Cottle. And it doesn't bother me to say that with tears in my eyes as we speak. If you're going to watch one match this week, go out of your way to watch this one. You know, I don't say that very often, but when I do, it's usually pretty on the money and, uh, a little peek behind the curtain Flair watched this one for the first time ever a few years ago and called me afterwards. So excited. He didn't know which match it was from, or I mean, he, he remembered you know, they did watch, you know, him wrestle Terry Funk in two rings and I wore the purple shit or whatever he said, but he didn't know the event. And he was trying to relay to someone, Hey, go back and watch this one because it was one of Flair's favorites. And you'll see why, when you watch it, Meltzer would give it four and a half stars. But he did say that, uh, if you could include the post-match antics, it's five stars all day. Uh, so go out of your way to check this one out. Uh, we should, we should go ahead and, and mention that on July 1st, uh, Flair would request Jim Hurd to allow him to, to defend the title against, uh, funk at the great American bash, which Hurd accepted. So the story here for this whole match is he's not even really supposed to be back yet, but he just has to get this revenge against Terry funk. So we've got a hot feud here. And just when you felt like you'd seen the best of Ric Flair with the steamboat trilogy, now you're going to see another side of him with this brawl and, and it's something else. 
your voice here is a subject of not only the newsletter, but you even mentioned it at the end that, uh, you're having trouble keeping up because, uh, this action has just been so much. And Meltzer would say, uh, your voice was dead before the show even started because you'd been calling so many matches with all the new stuff that TBS is rolling out. And, um, a lot of people say that this is and Meltzer included one of the best called matches in recent memory. When you hear somebody say, and of course, these days, as you said, with social media, you see all the, the negativity, but when you hear somebody like Meltzer say, this is one of the best called matches ever, uh, does that matter to you or is it just business as usual? Of course it matters. It, it, that's why uh, yeah, absolutely. Dave has uh, been around forever. He's had, he's had good mentors over the years, uh, including Paul Bosch and Cowboy Bill Watch to some degree. It meant a lot to me to hear that. I don't, I take a little defense that my voice is dead. It didn't sound dead to me when I watched it back, but maybe that's another guy's opinion. So, uh, uh, I don't know. I, I, I just love that, that match. And I go back and watch it. Like I said, I watched it twice folks in the last 24 hours and I've never seen it since 1989. It meant a lot to me to go back and watch it. And, uh, I appreciate the fine comments or that were made, but you know, Bob Cottle had a big part in how that match was uh, broadcast. I fed off Bob. Bob fed off me. It was a great teamwork, great synergy. Uh, but it, it always means a lot when people compliment you, that they respect your work, appreciate your work. And at the same time, sometimes I take things too personally, wear my feelings on my sleeve, especially when somebody on Twitter says, we hope you have another stroke and you and you shouldn't be calling matches if you're too old. So, you know, I got specific words to those folks, but, well, uh, no, I'll say it, fuck you. you know, why would you wish a stroke on anybody? Yeah. How about fuck you, buddy? How's that? Yeah, yeah that, that, that's applicable. <laughs> That's a fickle pal, but everybody's got an opinion. Everybody's got a voice. Everybody's a keyboard warrior, man. You can say what you want because you're high behind a keyboard. And nobody, I've never had somebody come up to me, Conrad, at, a, at one of our shows in the meet and greet portion or at an airport or anywhere else that I see a wrestling fan that would say anything along those lines. No, of course not. I hope you, hey, JR, goddamn, I just want to let you know. Hope you have another stroke. Well, you ill informed, ignorant motherfucker. You're that's sad. You're pathetic. Now get your pimply ass out of my face and move on down the road. Will you? Nobody's ever done that, but behind in social media, when you could hide and, and where your, where your balls would be, have plenty of room to fit into a thimble. Uh, they're, they're very brave. So I understand it. Here's what I, here's how I justify and, and maintain my decor, maintain my decorum, Conrad. I am still amazed and appreciative of the passion that some of these people have, whether I, I don't agree with all the things they, all the things they say and their, and their presentation skills. So, uh, and a lot of them will tag me in on Twitter at J R S B B Q just so I'll see it. I don't ever go on Twitter and, and search for my name because who, who cares? Uh, it's not something I need to, I appreciate the good things said. Don't need to, I don't need to subject myself to the negativity because what is the source of this negativity? I don't understand that. What is the source? Why are you so negative? It's a pro wrestling event. We're working without an ad here. We're doing the best we can. And, and this was very trying circumstances because the stories kept changing. The politics kept getting, uh, uh, in the way, but thank God you had a show closer with all these all-stars, these hall of famers that were working their ass off. And for that, I have great respect and another reason 
that folks, you should go watch uh, The Great American Bash 1989 if you are so inclined. You're going to love it, and they're not done yet. Um, one of my low-key favorite Ric Flair matches ever is going to be the rematch from this one. They're going to do an I Quit match at the New York Knockout Clash of the Champions in Troy, New York. I'm sure we'll get to that one at some point, but we hope you dug what we did today. Uh, I guess I should back it up, though. Uh, is this your favorite Great American Bash ever, or are there some that you preferred? Uh, I don't think I ever had a, a call to bash that I like better. It was really, really good because of what Rick and, uh, and Terry were able to accomplish to the greats of all time. And at the time we didn't know how great they were. I, maybe some of us thought we did, but now we know. We do know. And we know what we're doing next week. Uh, we're excited to do this one for you. I can't believe that August is finally here, but when we come to you again, we're going to be broadcasting on August 1st and that'll be, uh, just a couple of days away from the anniversary of SummerSlam 1997. Uh, we'll see you next week right here on Westwood One with Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, Jim Ross. See you next week. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.